Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. World Outreach Weekend guest speaker, Dr. David Cashin, explains why he believes this is one of the most exciting times to be a Christian. Let's listen now. Father, now we give our attention to your word. And and Lord, uh, your word is life. Your word sets our priorities. Your word clarifies our situation. Your word gives us our hope. Father, we want to be challenged. We want to be before you. We want to sit at your feet. We want to learn from you. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would come down right now on all of us and give us grace as we give attention to your word, that we may fully understand your purpose for us and that we, as our uh, worship team has sung, that we may say to you, take everything, Lord Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, today we're going to talk about the subject of the second coming, and particularly its relationship to the Great Commission. And one of the things that's exciting to me is to recognize that these two things are very closely related. They are integrally related. Our engagement in the Great Commission of Jesus Christ and the reality that He's coming again. So we want to look at that, and I'd like to begin uh, by reading a passage for you that kind of introduces, in a a way, what we'll be looking at from the Scriptures later. And uh, this is a very well-known passage. Many of you have uh, read it and studied it. You've probably heard some sermons on it. Uh, And in this passage, uh, Jesus Christ gives us the primary sign of His coming. Now, I'm not much of an eschatology buff, you know, one of these people that studies the end times. That's really not my area of expertise. But I am excited about the reality of the second coming and what my role, my part in this may be. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a part in the second coming of Jesus. Let's take a look at this passage, Matthew chapter 24, just one verse. Uh, Verse 14, and this is what the Scripture says. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Amen. Now, we have lots of ideas about the end times, don't we? Uh, I don't know if any of you have read books on this subject. When I was a new Christian, there was a book that came out by a guy named Hal Lindsey entitled The Late Great Planet Earth. And it was a book about eschatology. And uh, partway through that book, uh, Hal Lindsey, um, it's a good book in many other ways, but I think he made a mistake in the book because he was big on eschatology and, you know, what are the signs of Jesus coming back? And uh, he had this idea from Old Testament prophecy that Jesus would return within one generation of the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. And since a generation is 40 years, he added 40 years to the uh, date for the establishment of Israel, which is 1948, and he kind of made the suggestion that quite possibly Jesus would be coming back in 1988. Well, um, many of you have probably been born after that date, uh, so clearly that particular prediction uh, didn't come true. 
And I think there was a problem with Hal Lindsey's approach because he didn't seem to understand that Jesus mentioned all kinds of stuff, but over and over again he would say, but the end is not then. That is not the sign of the end. Wars, rumors of wars, catastrophes, hurricanes, earthquakes, all of that stuff is part of the general tribulation of human existence. But then when Jesus came to verse 14, he gives us the only true sign that his return is imminent. And that true sign is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. That is that Jesus will come back when the gospel of the kingdom has been preached in the whole world to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And as we read that particular passage, we recognize that God has set a goal for us. Uh, how many of you played baseball or, or uh, softball? A bunch of you have, I'm sure. Um, and you know there's that little expression uh, if you're into baseball or, or softball. Your coach will tell you when you're up to bat, keep your eye on the ball, right? Keep your eye on the ball. Because if you take your eye off the ball and you get distracted by other stuff, the cheering fans, you know, the confetti in the air or whatever, you're likely to swing and miss. What is the ball for us? What is the goal? It is the Great Commission and fulfilling the final commandment that Jesus gave to us. Now, you know the Great Commission was given at the end of each of the four Gospels and at the beginning of the book of Acts. We're going to look at one quick iteration of this uh, from Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. And this is what the Scripture says. "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations.'" baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These are the marching orders of Jesus to his church, given at the end of each of the Gospels and at the beginning of the book of Acts, making it very clear what's our calling. We are to make disciples. And by the way, the only imperative verb in that text is the verb make disciples. Christians are called to go everywhere. And by the way, this is not a pastoral thing. Uh, this is not for your outreach pastor. This is not something for missionaries to do. This is a general command to all believers that you make disciples. And that for some of you, that will involve going to the ends of the earth and making disciples in other languages, amongst other nations. And one of the most astonishing things about the Scripture is that Jesus provides us a very mysterious kind of privilege in that process. As you are making disciples, you are actually hastening the coming of Jesus. Take a look at 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12, which says the following. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Now, the key word there for us is hastening. But added to that is the reality of judgment. Did you notice that? It's kind of strange. We go from this hastening to suddenly a picture of God's judgment coming down on earth. Now, friends, if our salvation 
required the death of Jesus on the cross. There was no other way for us to get saved. You know, the lady I was talking to on the plane yesterday who said, oh, I hope I'm good enough to go to heaven. Well, the reality is nobody's good enough to go to heaven. Uh, what does uh, Romans 3.23 say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody gets to God by means of their own righteousness. Islam fails at this point. Hinduism fails at this point. Buddhism fails at this point. Secularism fails at this point. No human being on planet Earth is adequate to fulfill the righteousness of God. You cannot be good enough for God. John Stott once put it this way, to say that all human beings are sinful is not to say that we're all as bad as we could possibly be, but that none of us is as good as we should be. Friends, that's the challenge. How do we get saved? There is only one way, and that's through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. A Muslim friend of mine put it this way, he examined Islam, and when he got done, he made the following statement as a Muslim. I cannot worship a God who does not understand human suffering. What we see in Jesus, not only a God who understands human suffering in an intellectual sense, he engages in it. He gives himself to it. He allows himself to be spiked to a tree, suffering the most agonizing death that human beings have ever devised. It was the most exquisite form of asphyxiation torture. Well, friends, if Jesus Christ be God and died for you, then that's the only way of salvation. Scripture makes this very plain. There is no other way to God except through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the reality of judgment that we looked at in the Scripture is one of the motivating factors for us. People without Jesus are lost. Muslims are lost. Hindus are lost. Buddhists are lost. Secularists are lost and desperately, desperately desperately need the message of Jesus. Now, they may not want it. They may not like it. Some parts of the world, they might even kill you for telling them about it. That does not matter. I'm called to be faithful to what God is doing. Now, I'm going to talk a lot about judgment because the passage we're going to look at actually has to do with the subject of judgment. But before we get to that, I'd like to give you some encouragement as well. Because I can see across our world today signs that the Great Commission is on the cusp of being fulfilled. This is the most exciting time, in my opinion, in world history to be a Christian. We stand on the cusp of the fulfillment of the, that great task that Jesus gave us. Let me give you a couple of examples. One is Bible translation. Within the next 30 years... The Bible will have been translated into every living language on planet Earth. Now, by the way, that's already true for 95% of the world's population. 95% of the world's population can read the Bible now in their mother tongue. Within 30 years, 100% will be able to do that. 
By the way, no other religion will ever achieve this. It's not even on the scopes for most religions. Why does Christianity consider it so important to put the Bible in the mother tongue of every human being on planet Earth? Simply this, the Bible and Christianity are multicultural, and we believe that every tribe, tongue, people, and nation should come to Jesus within their own cultural context. We're not making them into Westerners. We're not making them into typical Presbyterians, and I'm Presbyterian, okay? But... We're not making them into that. We are bringing them to Jesus within their own cultural context. No other religion does that. Have a look, and you'll see what I mean. Secondly, the Internet. Now, uh, I'm an old guy. I sometimes refer to this device as the sword of Darth Vader. <laughs> it's, it's the bane of my existence, and if it goes off right now, I'm in trouble. But the reality is that God is using even these human means, the Internet, to spread his good news through this process of diffusion. A couple of years ago, two of my students decided that they wanted to do an ethnography in Mecca. Do you think you could figure out how to get into Mecca to uh, do an ethnography and then start to share the gospel? They figured out how to do that through the Internet. And they interviewed 20 individuals living in the city of Mecca and shared the gospel with all of them. Amazing. And by that kind of diffusion, the children, the youth of the world through the internet are becoming questioners. And they're questioning their own worldview. They're questioning their own religions. They're questioning what they've been taught. And for the first time in world history, they're allowed to do that. In much of the world, particularly in Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, you don't ask questions. You're not allowed to ask questions. I could tell you some stories about that from last weekend when I was with a Buddhist guy. And uh, I asked him about his form of spirituality, and he said, well, you know, I've, I became a Buddhist, but I'm kind of leaving it now. And I said, oh, why? Well, he said, uh, there are a bunch of questions that Buddhists don't want you to ask. I said, like what? Well, he said, just the simple fact that if I don't ultimately exist, why do I need to strive to realize it? Or I said, well, I've got a better one than that. I said, if karma somehow attaches to the soul, but the soul isn't real, what does the karma attach to? Which is pretty devastating to the Buddhist worldview. But you're not allowed to ask that question. He was at a Buddhist priory and they threw him out. Not allowed to ask questions like that. By the way, what's the most difficult question that Christians face? How is it that a loving God can allow so much suffering and evil in the world? Have you heard that question? <laughs> a couple of hundred times. But you know, we don't reject people for asking those tough questions. We welcome questioning because that's how faith begins. The rest of the world doesn't understand that. And as young people are questioning their own worldviews as never before, an open door has been created for the gospel of Jesus. Third thing that we're seeing is the turning of Muslims to Christ. What used to be the most closed area of the world where preaching the gospel was the most difficult, persecuted, martyrs were normal, missionaries would lead five people to Christ in their lifetimes, and four of them would get martyred. Today, we are seeing a turning of Muslims to Jesus like we've never seen before. I think I shared this with you last year uh, because the study had just come out last fall, uh, a year ago. Uh, the University of Utrecht, secular university, did a public opinion survey of 50,000 Iranians. 
asking them about their religious beliefs. And one of the most astounding realities that they discovered was that one million Iranians who were formerly mission, uh, Muslims have now publicly said that they're followers of Jesus. And by the way, that can get you killed in Iran. That can get you killed. It has gotten lots of people killed. I have three friends in Iran who've been killed. Wow. God is doing something totally unique and new. Uh, Hinduism and Buddhism are going political. Have you noticed this? I'll just focus on, on the Hindus for a moment. Hindutva. Anybody heard of this? This is Hindu nationalism. Get rid of the Muslims, get rid of the Christians. India, Bharat is Hindu. And we're going to have a politicized Hinduism. And my reaction to that is there's no better way to drive people out of Hinduism than to go political. By the way, that's what happened with Islam. The Muslim radicals wanted to make Islam the political system of the entire Muslim world. They not only failed to do that, in the process they have driven millions of young Muslims right out of Islam and into the arms of Christ. Same thing is happening with Buddhism. I won't go into the details of that. And by the way, here's a little warning for Christians. Keep this word in mind that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If you want to drive people away from Jesus, turn Jesus into a political thing. That will have the exact opposite effect of what you want. So learn from the Muslims and from the Hindus and from the Buddhists. As they try to politicize their religions, they are driving their young people out of their religions and into the arms of Christ. But let's not turn Jesus into um, a political thing where we think we're going to Christianize the world and when Jesus comes back, we'll all be there to wave. The passage we're going to look at shows us it ain't going to be like that. There's going to be some real suffering in the last days. But the joy is the gospel is going forward. And then finally, and this is the thing I just love the most, as I travel around the world and I visit in different uh, places and unreached people group areas, the missionary force of today is not Western, primarily. It's about 80% non-Western. It's Koreans. It's Brazilians. It's Costa Ricans. It's Indians. It's Nigerians. Now, by the way, our calling to missions has not ended. We're still sending out missionaries. But the reality is, instead of going from the West to the rest, we're now seeing the gospel go from all nations to all nations. It's the most amazing change that we've seen in the last hundred years. And to me, this signals the return of Jesus is coming soon. Well, let's take some time now to, to give attention to 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. By the way, this passage does not specifically mention the Great Commission. But keep in mind, Paul has already praised the Thessalonians for their missionary zeal. He calls them, in uh, this book, a sounding board for the gospel. The gospel had come to them through a missionary named Paul, but they had gone on with that missionary task, and they had spread the gospel throughout the entire region where they lived. So missions and the Great Commission is a background to this passage. It's a given. 
By the way, the unfortunate thing with the American church today is that background, that given, doesn't seem to exist anymore. There has been a major decline amongst the churches in America of interest in missions. And I will tell you this, there could be no better predictor of the decline of the American church than taking our eye off the ball. We've forgotten why we're here. We're not here to get a nice job and a nice house and all that kind of things. We are here to make disciples. And that means to the ends of the earth. So friends, the background of this passage is the Great Commission. And then in that context, Paul begins to describe for the believers what the second coming of Jesus means in that context of Great Commission. Let's take a look at the first two verses of this. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. What is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is the day of judgment. Uh, it's not the day when we start preaching the gospel or even that we finish preaching the gospel. It's when Jesus comes down to establish the kingdom of God on earth by his own righteousness, his own might, his own physical presence. Now, in this particular group of believers, there was some kind of a heresy idea moving around that maybe we've preached the gospel enough and maybe Jesus has already returned. Maybe they had this political idea, you know, we'll control the political system and then we'll all wave when Jesus comes. Or maybe we're already waving and he's already here. And this is mentioned in other parts of the scripture as well. People thinking, well, maybe Jesus is over here, maybe Jesus is over there. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment, and when it happens, the Scripture tells us, it will be like a thunderclap, lightning that bursts from one side of the sky to the other, from the east to the west, from the north to the south. Ain't nobody going to have any doubts at that moment in time. But then, the day of the Great Commission is finished. Now it's the day of judgment. And friends, this ought to be motivating us. If people are truly lost and can only be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, then this had better be an important priority in our lives. The day of the Lord is coming. Paul goes on to say this in the following two verses. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself, against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, this passage indicates that some kind of an apostasy is going on. Now, rebellion has already been going on. I mean, since Adam and Eve, the human race has been living in rebellion against God, in rebellion to the intimacy of relationship with God that he created us in his image for but somehow, at the end of time, that rebellion is going to break loose. We sometimes put it this way, all hell breaks loose. Now, we've seen lots of examples of, I might call, proto-people of unrighteousness or people of power. I mean, Vladimir Putin, Adolf Hitler, communists of various stripes, 
We get to see this kind of thing all around us, but somehow, at the end of time, before Jesus comes back, there's going to be an especially egregious period where some individual, by some kind of means, comes into a place of power. We don't know what temple is being talked about. We have no idea who this person is. But we do know that there is an antichrist who is coming who will oppose the church of Christ and seemingly for a time get the upper hand over us. What does that mean? Well, friends, it means suffering. Suffering. Now, if you think suffering is uh, just something for the end times, we already have that in many ways. This past week, two brothers in the Lord from Muslim backgrounds that one of my friends, Victor Quartas, was training uh, in a certain nation in northern uh, uh, Africa, I won't go into any more specifics, they were going home to their own villages where they were preaching and sharing the gospel and had established small fellowships house fellowships of believers under persecution. They were accosted by a radical Muslim group, and they were both beaten to death. I had the not-so-pleasant circumstance of looking at the pictures of their bludgeoned bodies, beaten to death for Jesus. That was last week. This is not anything new. This has been going on throughout the history of the church. And I think there is a very real circumstance here where God is, is telling us, hey, you want to give it all to me? Amen. I will take it all, and I may require it all of you. My good friend John Tarswell went to Afghanistan to work with the Afghan refugees and, and people who were in suffering. And uh, he made a huge mistake. You know what his mistake was? A Muslim convert from Afghanistan was murdered, and they were looking for his wife and children to kill them as well. And they escaped, and John harbored them, hid them in his home before he was able to find a way to get them out of the country to save their lives. Somehow... The Haqqani network found out about John's engagement in taking care of this widow and her children. And about 50 days before his third child was born, he was kidnapped, held, who knows where, we have no idea. And around the time that his third child was born, he was murdered. And his wife didn't find out for seven years what had happened to him. He was murdered for doing a good deed. He was murdered for serving the Lord Jesus Christ. He was murdered for protecting someone. By the way, this is happening all the time. Should it be any different for us? Are we somehow going to be the only ones who avoid any kind of suffering? You know, the amazing thing is the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, I Buffet my body, make it my slave, and I even take great joy in completing that which is lacking of the sufferings of Christ. Now, are the sufferings of Christ lacking something? Certainly not. But the reality is somehow we are united with Jesus in suffering. And we're also united with him in hastening the coming of the Lord. 
And so Paul goes on to say the following things because clearly this was not something new that he was teaching the church. This is what he says. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now, there are eschatology people who say, well, this must be the Holy Spirit being pulled out. And of course, Christians can't be there because how could you be a Christian on earth and not have the Holy Spirit, right? I'm sorry, the scripture doesn't say that. I don't know who the restrainer is or what is involved in the restrainer being taken away, but I think it's a dangerous thing as Christians to think that we're going to avoid suffering, that somehow we're going to get zapped beforehand. If we do, hallelujah. Uh, you know, I'm not a premillennial, I'm not post-millennial, I'm not amillennial, I'm a pan-millennial. I'm sure it's all going to pan out in the end, but I do know one key thing. If Jesus suffered for me, the greatest privilege of my life would be to suffer for him. Does that make sense? That that's, in some senses, now every Christian involved in spiritual warfare and you're all targets of Satan, you're all battling the world, the flesh, and the devil at all times, so you already have some inkling of what suffering means. The end of time, there may be an even more powerful reality of Christians suffering for Jesus. Now, here's the final word, and it's a great word of encouragement for us all. Paul says, and then the lawless one will, lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. What is the truth? That Jesus died for you. That God loved you so much he was prepared to go to the cross to redeem you. How could anyone not love a person who died for them? And yet, in the end of time, people will reject Jesus, and they'll reject us too. Now, there'll be a great harvest going on at the same time, and I do believe that the Great Commission will be fully fulfilled. We will have seen people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation coming to Jesus, and we may see martyrdom at a scale we've never seen before in Christian history. But then the trump will sound, and Christ will descend. And the lawless man will be destroyed, and salvation will be here on earth for all to see. And the day of judgment will happen. So, here are a couple of lessons for us to consider. First of all, our focus is on the Great Commission. To what degree do your daily activities reflect the Great Commission? And by the way, this is, as I said before, for everyone. Now, you might say, well, you're calling people to be missionaries, to go in that sense. Well, of course I'm doing that. But you know, it's a much broader group of people today than what we used to think about 50 years ago when we thought about sending out missionaries. Do you realize that the Indian government has established three incubator cities in India 
for foreigners, Westerners, whoever wants to come, to come to begin to develop ideas for business in India, and they'll give you a five-year visa, and the first two years, you know what they want you to do? They want you to learn the language. Holy cow! India will bring you to India to learn the language before you get involved in all the work of setting up your business or your idea. What that means is, and this is always my greatest question for people who wanted to go out in business as missions, is when are you going to learn the language? How are you going to learn the culture well enough to be able to minister effectively in that cultural context? And now the Indian government says, hey, don't worry about this, we'll do it for you. Friends, in spite of the persecution and troubles going on in the world, in spite of Hindutva, God is opening doors to us, the likes of which we've never seen in our history. Are you prepared to go through those doors when God calls? I could say a a number of other things. We could talk about the importance of prayer for the nations. Are you engaged in prayer for the nations? We could talk about giving. Are you giving to the nations? It's been my privilege for years to support missionaries personally in different parts of the world and get their prayer letters and be engaged in seeing what they're doing and praying for them. Are you engaged in mobilizing, in encouraging others to consider the call and the task of missions? Uh, are you engaged in ministries to refugees and immigrants? We heard a little bit about that from Susan today. There are a thousand ways you can give yourself right here, right now, to the task of the Great Commission. Is that on your scopes? Is that part of your life? Friends, recognize the reality of the coming judgment of God. It is one of the motivating factors for our mission that people are lost. Do you feel that deeply in your heart? Without Jesus, they're lost. I need to share this good news in any way that God can open the door for me to do so. Number three, be prepared for suffering. As I mentioned about John, I've mentioned uh, three other people here, uh, Mehdi Dibaj, Haikov Sepian, uh, actually it's not John Sayah, John is uh, John Tarswell, and then Pastor Sayah. Um, These were three Iranian friends Uh, my wife knew very well, a couple of them I knew very well. They all were killed by the Iranian government because they were Christians telling the good news of Jesus to Muslims. They paid the ultimate price for their faith in Jesus. Friends, are you, dare I say this, excited to suffer for Jesus? To have that privilege to be united with him in his sufferings? in bringing the good news to the ends of the earth? Friends, there is a wonderful concept in the New Testament. It's called the blessed hope. The second coming of Jesus is the blessed hope. We're on the cusp of it. You have a role to play. I don't care what your background, what your age is. By the way, we've got little old ladies who figured out that they can get into Zahedan, Iran, to reach Baluchi Muslims with the gospel through the internet, through pen pal clubs, teaching them English and sharing the gospel. It doesn't matter what your age is. It doesn't matter what your background is. Every one of you has a role to play in this. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. 
If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.